All right, let's go over to Isaiah 40 again with those readings from Job 38. Keep those fresh in your mind uh, because we are going to see from a very similar perspective as we deal with this continuation in the God of all comfort. Uh, We have been looking at over the last couple of weeks uh, the particular phrase, Behold your God. Uh, The first in this series, within a series, we considered, Behold your God, the strong. Uh, Then we looked at, Behold your God, the shepherd. And this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 12 through 17 and considering, Behold your God, the Spirit. Behold your God, the Spirit. I want us just to uh, look for just a moment at verses 12 and 13. And then we'll deal with the other verses this morning. But I want us to look at these. And again, notice the similarities in which uh, the Lord speaks to Isaiah. And Isaiah writes what he hears. How similar it is to the interaction that we just read in Job 38 uh, with between Job and the Lord. Verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? As we look at this text this morning, and we consider this thought, Behold your God the Spirit, in this paragraph between verses 12 through 17, we, we've come into what we'll refer to uh, as a, a new section in a great chapter. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't separate the truths of what we've already heard from the previous weeks, but there is in fact a, a, a bit of a change in the way that Isaiah describes and writes about God. When we looked at verses 1 through 11, we were very much aware that we saw this great theme of the Bible. We saw this great theme of redemption. And we saw how Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Messiah that would be, be, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we have seen how this vision and this, this revelation that he gave to Isaiah, and the reason he gave it to him is so that he would give comfort to God's people during a very difficult hour. They were getting ready to go into Babylonian captivity, and you'll recall that uh, they were going to be carried away. God was not going to intervene and keep them from going. They were going into captivity, and yet he said, even in captivity, even in difficulty, I want you to know that there is comfort that can be found in God. I believe many of us would say the best thing to do in a time of difficulty would be if I could just avoid the uncomfortable situation altogether, yet what Isaiah is being told by God is that even in the greatest of perilous times and the greatest hour, there is a deliverance and there is a salvation that would come into the world. So those first 11 verses, we have a perfect account and a perfect description of the gospel. We have a perfect message of comfort. We have a perfect message of salvation. We have a glorious announcement that our sins can be forgiven. And that we can, in fact, have an assurance of eternal life. These verses remind us how Christ Himself, the Son of God, would come. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, we've learned. And understanding this phrase, behold your God. This God who is the strong arm. This God who is the shepherd. And as we'll see this morning, this God who is the Spirit. 
And we see that as the Spirit, He is in fact a perfect counselor. He gives perfect counsel. God's wisdom is wisdom that goes beyond any wisdom that man can think of, any education that man can acquire. God's wisdom is unfathomable. And we see the questions that Job was he asked the Lord and how God answered the questions and really put Job in a place where Job had to respond. There's really no answer I can give but you, Lord. You're the only answer. You are the only answer to what earth's problems are. Remember, Isaiah was told to lift up his voice without fear. He was told to lift up his voice so that all could hear. He was giving an announcement of the goodness of God. Remember, he said, man is like the flower and the grass that withers, but the word of God does what? It stands forever. And we know that it was not until about eight centuries later, from the time Isaiah prophesied about this, that Jesus Christ the Messiah came onto the scene. Imagine a prophecy for 800 years. At some point, you would have wondered, how in the world could this prophecy come true? It's been 800 years that Isaiah spoke about this, and yet we know that Jesus Christ did in fact himself come onto the scene just as it was said. But we see here in verse 12, really, this kind of new thought being introduced. The prophet Isaiah has given us this amazing announcement of the gospel. He's given us all the assurances. He's given us all the wonderful promises. But from here to the end of chapter number 40, he tries to help us as we stand face to face with a proclamation of the reality of who God is. Now, I firmly believe that man will never know his lostness until he understands who God is. Man will never understand his lostness until he understands who God is. He needs to understand not just the power of God, not just the wisdom of God, not just the majesty and the greatness of God, but he needs to understand the very fact that God in himself transcends man's ability to even come up with a reasonable answer. Professors have tried for years to describe God. They've tried to bring Him to a place where even the question that we saw there, who hath directed the Spirit of Lord or who has been His counselor? You realize this God we're dealing with has never sought counsel from anyone. Yet man in his foolishness attempts to instruct God even in sometimes the way he prays. God, I just want to let you know you should. God, I just want to let you know about God doesn't need to be counseled by us about what he needs to do better or what he needs to do less of or how he should think about a situation. This is not words to be considered. This is a proclamation. Job 38 was not, hey, consider and think what, tell me what you think about this. God, when he's interacted with Job in Job 38, did not ask Job. Now, Job, I'm going to say some things, and at the end, I'm going to ask you, tell me what you think. No, it's a proclamation, it's a declaration. It's the same way we preach the gospel. The gospel is not something to be considered, it's something to be proclaimed. We just proclaim it the way it is, and we let God in the Spirit convert the soul. It's, it's never been about you and I intellectually convincing someone to believe this. And 
what Isaiah is writing about the Lord, this is almost unbelievable stuff. The illustrations he's given about water and given about the mountains and giving about the nations. He's bringing them to a place where he says, listen, when I compare anything to God, it amounts to nothing. You bring the greatest that the world offers and compared to God, it amounts to nothing. No matter how you phrase it, no matter how you shape it. So God sends this message. It reminds us of a man called Abraham, and we're all familiar with Abraham, I would hope. But even Abraham, who was called a friend of God in James 2.23, we read that he was staggered by what God told him about a child who was going to be born to him. Remember, his wife Sarah laughed. She's like, how can I give birth at my age? Now, that's not what it says, but that's what the implication, that's the paraphrased version. How can I give birth at my age and that my husband, Abraham, he's an old guy? And of course, people even in Jesus' day, they ask for signs. They wanted a sign that this Messiah was coming. And when the announcement was made to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the very forerunner, Zechariah could not believe it. That he was going to give, he was going to give birth or have part of the birth of John the Baptist with his wife. Even Mary was amazed at what she heard when she was going to be used by the Almighty God of the universe to bring into this world the incarnated Christ. So there's a, an anticipated unbelief here. In other words, when I tell you what, who God is, the normal, reasonable response is for you to respond in unbelief. It'll almost seem impossible. One of the things that has always, just on a personal note, has always been the amazing thing about preaching God's Word is you're preaching the God of the impossible. And But every word that we preach, every word that we read, although it sounds unreasonable and impossible, we know it's true because God has spoken it. And because the Word of God stands forever. And because of that, I have great hope today and I have great comfort in knowing that when I read God's Word, even when I don't fully understand it, I'm comforted. I'm not, I'm not understanding these illustrations fully that we're going to go over. How can God, how can it be as nothing to God, something that's so immense to you and I? Because he deals with some immense thoughts here. So you'll notice here that in verse 13 especially, he says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Now Isaiah is going to ask three questions. Those questions are going to concern the power, the wisdom, the majesty, and the greatness of God, which, of course, taken with verses 1 through 11, we need to understand them also in the context of the coming Christ. And it is to show that the same God who is equal to the work of redemption and salvation was about to come and to perform exactly what he said he would do. He has the power, this Christ who would come, has the power to execute his office as shepherd and also be a strong arm through his grace and through his goodness. This same God has condescended, 
came down from heaven to take on the work of a Savior and the office of a shepherd, yet still be strong and glorious. None of His offices are diminished by the other. The shepherd is the strong. He doesn't become less shepherd when he becomes strong. He doesn't become less strong when he becomes the shepherd. And Isaiah wants us to see, here's the comparison of the Savior we're talking about. And I want us to look here at this first question that's found in verse 12 and consider the power of God. The question is asked, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? The prophet begins by emphasizing the greatness or the power of God. The first aspect he draws our attention to is he says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Notice what he's saying here. There is this wonderful picture of the, a picture of the seas. He says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the waters of the oceans, for which he has provided the very receptacle that, that holds the oceans? The earth is 75% water. He provided the receptacle for that. He has collected it all and put it together exactly where it goes. Now, you know the 75% is only an estimate because even the greatest scientists and the greatest geologists in the world have never been able to fully determine exactly how much water is on the planet. So we're given this illustration. The dimensions of how much water on this earth is known is measured by him. Now get this, in the hollow of his hand. Now, if you look into the hollow of your hand... It doesn't tell you anything. As a matter of fact, if you're like me, you look into the hollow of your hand and you just get distracted. But he says, the measure of the waters are measured by God in the hollow of his hand. Now what we have to avoid here is by humanizing God to such a point that we look at our hand and we say, okay, that's the immensity and the power of God. Here he, has, he has, knows exactly the measurements of it. He knows that the water doesn't go anywhere, that he doesn't allow the water to go, where the, he has commanded the water. His hands hold as much water, the earth's water, and we compare it to how much water we can hold in the hollow of our hand, which is next to nothing. So when you compare yourself to God in just this measure, you're really nothing. I've got a cup of water back here. If I pour this into my hand, not only will it not stay there, I'll pour it in and it'll all run out. Even if I keep my hand cupped, it'll eventually all, roll, it'll all run right out of there. That's the immensity of the power of God we're talking about. He's instructed even the water where to go. He's meted out heaven with the span. It's an interesting word, meted out. Is a, it's an expression that, that deals with to draw back. It's like a curtain. 
As a matter of fact, he uses this picture later on in Isaiah 40 and verse 22. It says, he, he, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He has stretched out the heavens. He's made the heavens and has compared it to like when you and I draw a curtain back. Now that's very simple for us. But he has, he has measured out heaven that way just by the simple pulling of a curtain. And it's an amazing thing that it's nothing to him. It's nothing more, as Isaiah says in verse 22, it's nothing more to him than, than spreading out a curtain or spreading out a tent. Easily measured by us, but immeasurable by him. Then he uses the expression and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. This word signifies this measure is signifies the third part of something larger. So when you see that phrase and comprehended the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth in a measure, it's an indication of a third part of something larger. The sense very well could be here that the dust of the earth or the earth itself, which is but dust, is no more with the Lord than a single speck of dirt or earth that you and I could hold between our, maybe our thumb and our finger. You're comprehending this, aren't you? It's deep. To God, the entire earth is like you and I going outside picking up, or picking up one grain of sand and putting it between our thumb and our index finger, to God, that's how the whole earth is. We're not talking about some weak God. We're talking about a powerful God. And then he gets even deeper. He says, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. As easily as you and I can take something from the, from the supermarket, for example, you know the scales they have in the produce section. Take something and you put it on the scale there. As easily as we can do that and get the true weight of them, with the same equal ease did God raise up mountains and hills in the proper proportion. Now man's tried to, tried to relegate all that you see in the earth to science and the foolishness of evolution. They've tried. They've tried to say all of this came just as a, a result of a cosmic explosion somewhere. No, it's been... The, ba the mountains are balanced by God. He's put them there. As easily as you and I take something from the produce section, put it on the scales in the supermarket, He's done that with every single mountain and every single hill. And it's balanced. He has put them and so exactly placed them as if he had put them in scales and they balance out. The picture is the old-fashioned scales where you would put a weight in another and then you would weigh it out until it was balanced and even. That's what he's done with the earth. So the answer to this first question is the same person in which Isaiah said, Behold your God who will come with a strong hand and feed his flock. It's the same answer. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The strong arm and the shepherd. So application number one is this, that the consideration of the infinite power of God 
admonishes us to trust Him. The consideration of His infinite power admonishes us to trust Him. If you can't trust God, you can't trust anyone. And you can't trust anything. And sadly, most people are putting their trust in something in this world instead of this God. Thank you very much. I'll put my trust in God. You say, but have you heard about this? It doesn't matter. Have you heard about this? It doesn't matter. My trust is in this God who's measured out the waters in the hollow of His hand, who's comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, who's weighed the mountains in scales, and He's put the hills in a balance. I'll take Him. You can take whatever else or whoever else you trust in, but you're, you're on sinking sand. But I'll take God. Verses 13 and 14, the questions consider. The wisdom of God. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? We see here that as this thought continues and he continues to bring us into this place, we understand that he begins to give illustrations of how he directs. Notice it says, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? So when we consider the wisdom of God and we consider uh, who God is, we have to take into account here what he's dealing with as he, we consider counseling and wisdom. Who directed the Spirit of the Lord in creation, all things, in the creation of heavens, in the creation of the earth, in the moving upon the face of the waters? Not anybody, not angel, not man. There was none with God when everything was created. Nobody directed God. Nobody told God, here's where you place this. Here's the order in which you do it. It was there. He had no counselor. Creation was not just by God the Father. Creation was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why in the beginning of the Scriptures it says, let us make man in our image. Jesus was not some afterthought. He was at creation. Most of your, your uh, very weak uh, Bible teaching materials will give you the idea that it was only God the Father who was involved with the creation of the earth. No, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They've always been in existence. Jesus Christ was at creation. You say, how can that be? He was born in a manger. That's the incarnation. That's when God took on a robe of human flesh never ceasing to be God. But Jesus Christ has always been. I told you one of the hardest difficult theological questions anybody ever asked me was asked by a child under 10 years old. And the child simply asked, where did God come from? <laughs> He's always been. Well, that's not a good answer in the eyes of a 10-year-old. Because finitely, there's got to be a reason. There has to be a starting point. Yet there's no starting point with God the Father. There's no starting point with God the Holy Spirit. And there's no starting point with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No starting point. And yet, we're to trust man's theories and man's philosophies? You'd be foolish to believe that. You'd be foolish to even believe an amended version of that. By simply saying it is God Himself who directed what would happen. Who has been His counselor? Who's taught Him? No, there is no other counselor. There is no angel. There has been no counsel 
from the outside given. Verse 14, with whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. The answer for God is this is the very same thing as before. It's repeated just in other words. To strongly deny that any mere creature had any part in the purposes and the plans of God. Man did not instruct the Spirit of Christ in ordering and managing the works of creation. There's there's another wonderful thought I'm standing here thinking. God, not, not only was He not instructed, and not only was He taught, and He wasn't taught knowledge, He already possessed those things. But do you know what happens to man when he begins to possess more and more of those things? He becomes what we refer to as he becomes unteachable. In other words, man gets so smart in himself that he thinks, I don't need any more instruction. I can cease now. The problem is you should never cease from instruction. Because you are never going to come to the full knowledge and full understanding the way God thinks. No matter how righteous and holy you think you are. None of us will reach that. And sadly, there like I mentioned as we began, there are some who think, I need to help God think. I need to give God some understanding. God doesn't need it. God can't learn from you. Let that sink in a minute. You cannot teach God anything. You can't even teach Him how to reconsider something. Now, we've all had times in our lives when we've asked God why. But do you know that every question that we ask God doesn't make God stop and think and say, maybe I didn't think that thing through. Maybe I didn't have full understanding when I allowed or ordained that difficulty into your life. Maybe I... He doesn't reconsider. We need to understand that this this God that we're dealing with here, this this is beyond the work of man. Notice it goes on in verse number 14 and and says, and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. Who gave God that judgment? Who gave God that knowledge? Who gave him understanding in framing the world? This is something much more than any human or an angel for that matter can even begin to speak on. It is purely divine. It's pure deity. No man could have carved out a path of judgment and a way of understanding. Do you know all of us judge our circumstances and situations often by how we were taught to judge them? Do you know each one of us can take one situation and look at it and, and, and for truth's sake can see that situation and our judgment being different? Now think about that a moment. The same circumstance, the same situation, the same trials, the same situation. Our judgment is based upon what we were taught. All of us grew up in homes that taught us how to judge circumstances. How to judge things. God's judgment is always the same. Nobody taught Him His judgment. He has that judgment. He is judgment. His way of understanding, the way you and I understand the world. Our worldview comes from what our understanding is. And who taught us? Listen, it's not unusual that if you grow up in a non-biblical home, 
it's not unreasonable to think you're going to have a worldview on everything. You're going to view the world through the man's understanding, not through God's understanding. That's why the Word of God is so important. Folks, don't judge the world through man's view. Judge the world through God's view and the Word of God that stands forever. That's where true understanding comes from. I've told you for weeks now, I am so concerned about where Christians are going with their understanding and why you're buying in to so many things that are false. Instead of looking to God. It's almost like Christians have forgotten, wow, I wonder if God's considered that. God doesn't consider. God, you cannot teach God something. And yet, we see that even in the works of very creation, just creation alone demonstrates. I love what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11. If you'll turn there with me, go to Romans 11 and look at verse 33. And I'll do my best here not to fully preach this text because this is really hard when you read it to not go into all the details. But Romans 11, look at verse 33. The Apostle Paul writing says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. One thing I love is that verse, two exclamation points. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Question. Or who hath been his counselor? What passage do you imagine that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he was penning Romans 11 verses 33 and 34? He had Isaiah 40 in his mind. Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So the second application, again, we're not going to go into all the details, just want you to see that. The consideration of God's infinite wisdom admonishes us to be obedient. The consideration of God's infinite wisdom admonishes us to be obedient. We don't question what God tells us to do because of His infinite wisdom. You know, when you're a child and even when you're an adult, when someone tells you to do something, you always want to know, why do I have to do that? And I said that intentionally. Even as adults, we do that. Why do I have to do that? Why does that apply to me? Look at our world today. The number one rallying cry, don't tell me what to do. Man hates to be told what to do. Even a redeemed, regenerated believer despises being told what to do. Yet we tell our children, your disobedience to this is unacceptable. But suddenly, when you're an adult, now you don't have to be obedient anymore. See, the reality is, is our obedience is a result of understanding and the consideration of God's wisdom. God has never told us something wrong or something misleading, or something we couldn't trust. We respond to this God in obedience. Now, verses 15 and 16 are kind of connected with these, this second question, but notice what it says. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. There's another one of those world cliches you hear all the time. People say, a drop in the bucket. Where did that saying come from? It came from the Bible. It says, a drop in a bucket. 
and are counted as the small dust of the balance, behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. The nations, this verses 15 and 16, deal with the majesty of God. Now remember, he speaks about nations. The nations are as a drop of a bucket. Is he just referring to in the context of just nations in general? It could be said that, but remember the true context was the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and those who the Israelites were going to go into captivity with. He's reminding them, listen, the Babylonians seem strong, the Chaldeans seem strong, but remember to God, they are nothing more than a drop in a bucket. Now, let me just tell you this morning, there are a lot of people worried about a lot of nations in the world. Every nation in this world is a drop in the bucket to God. You said, if that nation gets too powerful, we're in trouble. They're a drop in the bucket to God. Folks, we have got to get this out of our mind where we think God somehow has lost control. And we see someone rise up or we see something happen and we think, where is God in all this? He's in the same place he's always been. And yet Christians, Christians are the loudest complainers right now. You should be the quietest spirit because you trust God. You're acting like we have no hope in this world. And if your hope is in this world, you've placed it in the wrong place to begin with. You say, but don't you see what's happening? I see everything that's happening that comes before my eyes. And I know I don't have perfect judgment. I don't have perfect wisdom. I can't even guarantee that I'm rightly judging a situation correctly because I'm not God. But I do know God. And God says every nation of this world is as a drop in a bucket. Remember the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the many enemies that Israel had, they were very troublesome to the Jews. But just like all the other nations of the world, when you compare them to God, you compare them to His infinite power, when you, convince, when you compare them to His infinite wisdom, they are nothing more than a drop of water that hangs from a bucket or falls from it or is left in it. It's nothing in comparison to God. And he says, he goes one step further, and he said, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. They are accounted nothing of God. In other words, if you were to take a weight on a scale and put it on one side and drop one uh, grain of sand on the other side, it would do nothing to that scale. I mean, let's just use something our minds get. I put a five-pound weight on one of those balancing scales. If I take one granule of sand and I put it on the other side, it doesn't even move. If I put a pound on that other side and I take one grain of sand, it doesn't move. The comparison here is, is that everything to God is counted as a small thing. In other words, God doesn't give way to any of these things. When someone asked the question, where was God during this? Where was God when this? Where was God when this happened? in the same place he's always been. You think what's going on in our world and our country is moving the needle of God. You don't know God. Nothing that's happened has made God reconsider. Nothing's taken God by surprise. And yet many believers are living like they don't even know who this God is, yet they claim to have a relationship with Him. If you have a relationship with Christ, why are you so out of sorts? 
If you truly believe that you're not living for now, you're living for eternity, why are you so out of sorts as a believer? Use this opportunity to point people to Christ, not to the wisdom of man. The problem is we have great access now to influence a lot of people by a keyboard. And our keyboards, we think, this is what everybody needs to know. What everybody needs to know is about the God of the universe and about the Savior, the Shepherd, who shed His precious blood and died on a cross for your sin. They don't need to know more man's philosophy. The more philosophy that comes, God seems to get pushed more and more to the back. And I wish I was talking about unbelievers. This is primarily with believers. I don't blame an unbeliever because they don't know any better. But what do you think the unbeliever looks at when they see the believer panicking? And they see the believer who's all out of sorts because, but they say, my God is so great, but one little disruption of their life and they say, boy, we're, just lo we're losing it. We haven't lost anything. What you see is the result of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's the result of sin. Every problem in this world is the result of sin. It's not, some, it's not generational. It has nothing to do with society. It's sin. Now that doesn't preach today. Sadly, that gets you thrown out of churches today. You can't even talk about sin anymore. Only talk about issues relevant to the day. There is no more relevant issue than sin. It is the very reason why everything you see bad happening in the world is happening. It's a result of the fall. The unbeliever says, wow, you have such a great God, but why is he letting so many bad things happen? The unbeliever says that in ignorance. The believer ought to, be, ought to say, listen, my God is sovereign. He's providential. He's always in control. Do I have all the answers to it? No. There are people going to ask you questions like Job was asking God and the answers are going to, you're not going to have the answer for them, but they can certainly see your hope. Why are you hopeful in the middle of all of this? Because I know God. That's the only reason. Nothing this world offers is going to bring me any change of mind and hope. People circle a date on a calendar and say, well, we'll set things right when this happens and everything will be right when this happens. Everything's not going to be right until Jesus Christ comes and takes his bride. Then it will be right. But if you think you're going to see it in this world and in this life and you're going to be able to look around and say, wow, now th isn't this wonderful? See, there, the prosperity gospel has gotten into so many crevices in churches that they're actually starting to believe we're supposed to have our best life now and we're supposed to be happy and content and comfortable. There's no chapter and verse for that until Jesus Christ comes and takes his bride. And that day is coming as sure as I'm standing here before you. I don't know the hour. I don't know the day. I don't need to speculate. He's coming just like Isaiah said. He's coming. So when I start feeling hopeless and foolishly wasting my time on things that are not giving anybody hope, you're just making it worse. Turn your eyes to Christ and get them off of the world's view. Turn off the news. Please. Please turn it off. Amen. 
Stop wasting your time on every news article and every expert that says, I know what's wrong. Turn it off. I'm a bit passionate about this today. Turn it off. Oh, I can't live without it. That's your problem. That's my problem. We think we need man's wisdom. We don't need it. He taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. This means what, it, what you think it means. An island. He takes it up as a very little thing. The Lord can pick up an island and cast it away. Can move it. Can destroy it. That word little may signify something very light. Throughout Scripture we see illustrations of this. Uh, illustrations of things that are light like the chaff, the straw, the stubble, feathers, thistles, easily carried away with the least little bit of force. Behold, the isles are as something little. That's what the islands are to God. Verse 16 is interesting. He mentions Lebanon. He says Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. And you say, what does burning have to do with anything? He's dealing, the Lebanon was known for its cedar trees. It was known for the largeness of these trees. And he's given the illustration that even if you took all of, the, all of the trees of Lebanon, all the great cedars of Lebanon, they would not be sufficient enough to burn a sacrifice that would be suitable to the dignity and the majesty of God. And we know he's talking about that because he says again in verse 16, he says, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. So we know the context of verse 16. A burnt offering was given in order to gain approval or to be suitable. The idea here is, is that even if you took all the trees of Lebanon and you took the beasts thereof that are sufficient for offerings, if you put all of those things together and you tried to offer them up to God, it would not be nearly enough. Yeah, we think God needs our little things. Oh, God needs me. I'm bidding. I'm doing God's bidding. God needs me to set them straight. God needs me to do it right. God needs me, me to make sure God does not need you. He doesn't need me. But we sure need Him. We need Him. Jesus Christ was the only suitable offering. That's what He's leading to. Jesus Christ was the only offering. Only He Himself could provide the Lamb that was sufficient for a burnt offering. And He has done it as the only begotten Son of God. He offered Himself as a full offering and a sacrifice to God. And it's referred to by the Apostle Paul as a sweet-smelling savor. And through that sacrifice, He has put away sin and has made full payment for our sins. So application number three, the consideration of His infinite majesty admonishes us to worship Him. The consideration of His infinite majesty admonishes us to worship Him. This great God is certainly worthy of our worship, but we ought to worship Him because of the character of who He is. Verse 17, and we'll finish with this verse. All nations before Him are as nothing, and they are counted to Him less than nothing and vanity. All nations before him are as nothing. The greatness of God is so immense that it is as if these great nations are non-entities. It's as if they don't even exist. We hear that word thrown around 
great nations, great countries, when they're compared to God, they're not even real. Now think about that just for a moment. It's like it doesn't even exist. He is the author of all creation, everything that exists, every nation. He compares them as we, we read uh, later on in verse 22. We'll deal with that verse next week. They're counted as grasshoppers. It's, it's like they're not even worth mentioning. <laughs> oh man, if we could just see that honestly in our own humanity apart from God, and again, this is not popular preaching. This, this, this is not going to get you called in to the big mega churches. We say, God, God really thinks very highly of you, and God has you up on a pedestal. No, if you really knew who you were compared to God, the actual biblical answer to who you think you are is, is you're nothing. And I'm nothing. The problem is we've elevated mankind to think mankind can somehow come up to where God is. Your greatest sacrifice, the best thing you could bring to God, would not even merit you a stitch of favor with Him. We're, we're reaping the results of a generation of people who started preaching a God that was not transcendent above them. But there's a God that wants to be on your level. God can't be on your level, nor can you be on His level. The only reason He's mindful of you is because of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't add value to His kingdom. He adds value to you. Because he's given you the most precious gift you could possibly receive. Counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. I like what one commentator said. He said, if there could be such a thing as less than nothing, that's what we are. <laughs> I don't like that kind of preaching. Preach. I don't like that kind of Bible stuff. That just I came here today that you would make me feel better. If it doesn't make you feel better that this almighty God condescended down to you in your sinful, wicked, depraved situation that offers no value to God, cannot help him in any way, if you don't leave here encouraged knowing you're a child of God, there is no encouragement for you. Folks, once you understand your depravity and once you understand who you really are and who God is, the fact that God even is mindful of anything that you are ought to throw you flat on your face before God and say, God, I am so unworthy of this, and yet you have called me to yourself. Amen. Not, hey, God, look at my value. Look what I can do for your ministry. Look what I can do for you. Not, God, look, I'll defend you. Listen, stand for the gospel. Preach Christ, but don't think God needs you to defend him. God doesn't need you to clarify who he is more than what he's clarified in his word. People often say, what do I tell a person about God? Give him his word. Tell him what the Bible says about him. Fourth application and in conclusion, the consideration of his infinite greatness admonishes us to be humble. The consideration of his infinite greatness admonishes us to be humble. What's the response to all this? We ought to respond to God in total humility. If you're going to try to look to who God is, be prepared to see the impossible. Be prepared to be confronted by the reality that I am nothing and God is almighty and glorious. There is nothing I can do any further than to just simply fall before God 
and worship Him and say, Lord, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to hear. That's all we have. And believe me this morning, if you have never realized the truth about God, if you've never come to a place where you know that you're a sinner and that the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ, try to picture yourself someday and every man, woman will stand before God one day, standing in the presence of God. What will that day be like? Because you're either going to stand before Him as an unbeliever or you're going to stand before Him as a believer. There's no in-between. Today, if you feel the weight, you feel the words of Scripture, you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit convicting you, the command is repent and believe the Gospel. I'm not asking you to consider it. I'm not asking you to think about it. I'm by the authority of Scripture saying repent and believe the Gospel. I'm not saying go home and think about this over lunch in a couple hours. I'm saying repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus Christ will not cast out any who comes unto Him. Come unto Him. When do I go? Right now. Repent. Believe the Gospel. There is nothing like our God. Behold our God, the Spirit. Let's finish this.